The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, so yes, we are celebrating Thanksgiving this week. And one of the things that I want to draw your attention to, to be thankful for, because most of you don't come in until after the video announcements, is that... uh, We can be thankful that uh, you guys brought so much food for the food drive that we were able to help all the families that we helped out and give over 1,500 pounds of food to a local uh, nonprofit that we support. So you should give yourselves a big round of applause, yeah. Uh, But don't pat yourself on the back too much yet because there's still work to be done. We got the gift drive coming up now. So uh, next thing is our gift drive and you can scan the QR code here. There's banners out in the lobby. You can go to the hub and uh, there's lots of presents that we want to be able to help provide for families in need through our connection with TISD this year. Uh, So we not only need gifts, but we're gonna have a huge luncheon down at the Creekside building hosting these families. We need table hosts. We need people to work in the kitchen. We need people to provide uh, Walmart gift cards to help buy the food. So we need lots of help. So if you want to sign up, we'd love to have you on board. So today we're going to be looking at the book of Jude. Yes, I said Jude. Uh, This is not not a relatively common topic or book. I've never actually spoken on this book up here on the stage. Uh, So it's been a great uh, few weeks kind of diving into this book and what all it has. It's only one chapter. It's right before the end of the Bible, right before Revelation. I hear some of you looking for it, Uh, but it's right at the end. Uh, You know, so I think we can be excited about digging into something maybe that's not uh, as common for us as some of the other writings in the New Testament. So I think a little bit of background might help. Jude is uh, James' brother, but he's also the brother of Jesus. And then we have uh, this being written around the mid-60s after Jesus' uh, resurrection. Uh, so it's similar to something like Second uh, Peter, uh, similar writing time and similar topics. His audience was either only Jewish or a mix of Jewish and uh, Greek, but very, people that were very familiar with Jewish culture. So that's who he's writing to. And so it's a letter, obviously, he starts with a greeting we're going to start with, and he, he finishes with a, a doxology, kind of an ending, but it also mirrors a lot of what we find in Old Testament literature, which is an oracle of judgment. So it's important for us to understand that as well as we get into it. Uh, so he gives a call to contend for the faith. So he's writing to believers. We don't know who these believers are and the destination of this letter, but he does give a call to contend for the faith. And so in his greeting, in his salutation of this letter, uh, he goes on like this in verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we see him greeting these people and he calls these believers beloved, called, and kept. So for us, we can understand that these were friends of his, right? These were close relations to him. 
And for he's speaking to them in that way, but he's also helping them understand who they are in Jesus. Not only does he love them, but we see he, they're kept, they're called, and they are beloved, which we'll get into that word a little bit later. So when thinking about this word found in verse three, contend, to contend for the faith, it's not a word that we often use. I don't think maybe, you know, you girls over here, I don't think you use the word contend much. Maybe you do, but I doubt it. You know, I was contending for uh, whatever it is you fill in the blank. It's not really a common word. So when we think about it, maybe we can kind of look at the meaning of <clears throat> what it is or maybe even what it isn't according to this illustration. There's a long-standing cartoon that's been out since the 70s and it's still going on today. Even my sons will watch it here and there. They love it just like I used to love it as a kid because it's full of sarcasm and other things like good food like lasagna. Uh, there's a picture of this uh, featured character, Garfield. So Garfield, <clears throat> this isn't a picture meant to show foreshadowing of what you're gonna look like this Thursday after you stuff your faces with amazing food, although it may be you, it may be me, uh, no judgment here. But uh, <clears throat> it's really for us to understand uh, what Garfield was all about. Garfield was all about his own contentment, right? He was about his own satisfaction. Just give me some food and let me chill. Let me relax. And this is kind of, you know, why would we show this picture to talk about contending? And I guess we would really picture the opposite here, right? Because oftentimes what happens in our believing culture, in church culture, especially the Bible belt, so to speak, where we get into this culture, it's this idea of, okay, I'm going to pray this magic prayer. I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart. Now he's going to be alive in there somehow. I didn't really never understood that as a four-year-old, but ask Jesus in my heart. And now I feel good about myself. I'm cool. I can hop in the recliner, relax, right? That's kind of the picture we get sometimes of Christianity that is nothing close to the truth found in Scripture. Yeah, there's been many times it's, uh, man, I was a youth pastor here, past tense, is weird to talk about that, but youth pastor here for 17 years, 25 years overall, and I've had many, many interviews with parents for baptism for their kids. And these are fifth graders, sixth graders, and it's interesting what, when I talk with them, and they're talking about their faith of their kid, and praying the prayer, right? And it's like, this uh, sense of relief comes over them, like... Oh, finally, they said the prayer. Ding, they're good, right? My job here is done. And it's just such a sad kind of feeling. They would never say my job here is done, but the feeling and the vibe I get is like, I'm good now. They're stamped, right? They got their fire insurance. I'm good to go. But what I love and what I get the opportunity to stress in those meetings is, this is just the beginning. This is the launch pad to something better and amazing and a better life you've ever imagined for yourself. And so to contend is an ongoing action. It's not like Garfield stuff in your face, you know, with the word of God or whatever it is, you know, worship time and then you're done for the week or you're done for whatever. You've checked that box. 
Contending is an ongoing thing. So Jude, he warns the readers that false teachers who promote wickedness are always striving and pulling. It's kind of interesting. He even says in verse three, hey, I was gonna write to you about common salvation. I was gonna write to you another topic. You ever, uh, have you ever been like you're about to meet with somebody and you got just, you're really just gonna shoot the breeze, hang out, catch up, and then something happens and you're like, oh, I know, I really gotta talk to them. Sometimes it's to confront them about something. Sometimes it's to confess something happened to you, whatever it is. But there's a kind of a shift And this is what happens with Jude here in verse three. So he shifts and he gets to false teachers who are promoting wickedness within the body. And he has this idea that he's he's kind of painting this picture of a pooling, a striving. And that's where this rope comes from. This rope has been used for years and years on Mission G, our mission trip to Galveston, our junior hires take, and it's tug of war. We play all kind of games on the beach called Mission G Olympics. And uh, that's just what we do. And uh, it's lots of fun. Well, this rope has been used many times to watch kids fall over after they've been pulling so hard in this competition and tug of war. And that's kind of the picture that I got when I was reading this. It's not like other illustrations that Paul gives of like boxing where there's like an end to the round or running where there's an end to the race. In the tug of war, it's like a perpetual tug of war, a never ending tug of war that the enemy, these false teachers are coming at these people and they're bombarding, bombarding them with false teaching and different things that are going to twist scripture. And the idea is this, where these people, he wants to encourage them, number one, not to let go of the rope, but to keep pulling. To not let the enemy, these false teachers and spiritual forces just like drag them around figuratively all over in their faith where they're just confused and they have nowhere to go and they're not sure what's right and what's wrong. And he's encouraged them to pull back. It reminds us in Ephesians 6.12 of of what we wrestle against. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We have a tug of war that's going on. And the enemy wants to pull us different directions. And oftentimes, if we kind of sit back and relax, that's what happens with us. When we're not urgently seeking the scriptures and growing in our faith as a body or among our small group, where we just kind of float around and get pulled around by every wind and wave of doctrine, as scripture puts it. You know, what a waste of time it would be if we spent the last nine weeks talking about spiritual disciplines and never used them to contend for the faith and never used them to pull back on the enemy, to gather other people around us, to grab the rope and yank back and say, no, you're not taking that ground. I'm gonna recover ground that I've lost and I'm gonna be in the word, growing in my faith. And you know, this word contend and the idea behind it, even the illustration we're using is Maybe one that you want to shy away from, right? Maybe it goes along with the idea of working out or eating better, especially the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Like, come on now. Are we talking about this right now? And sometimes we just want to run from those things and sometimes we kind of just want to just kind of ignore that a little bit and it kind of is negative. But I don't want, just like Jude, didn't want this to be a negative thing for the believers, 
He wanted them to see that it's a joy to contend for the faith. It is a privilege to contend for the faith. The saddest thing for a believer is to see them just sitting on the sideline, not in the battle, not in the war, just chilling out. They got their faith and they believe in Jesus, but not enough of Jesus to actually get into the battle. Unfortunately, that's where many are. And John might argue that they're not even in the faith. And so for us, we see it's a privilege. We need to pick up the rope and start contending again. Start getting into the word more, memorizing scripture. We're going to get into all the actions. I'm jumping ahead of myself. So before Jude gives instructions on how to contend, though, he gives some illustrations on what, <clears throat> what the reasoning behind contending. Verses 4 to 13. Look at verse four. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he's identifying these false teachers. And this verse says enough about them, but just wait. It goes on and on and it's pretty powerful and in your face when it comes to these teachers. So there's an obvious problem Jude was identifying. False teachers had infiltrated the ranks of believers. They've come under this kind of guise of being leaders and kind of leading them astray. But so it's hard for us to relate to that at times, how we live, where we live in our society today, maybe in the church. Now, there may be false teachers in here that are trying to lead people astray, but we kind of see it more nuanced now. We see it in different ways, whether it's podcasts or, you know, social media or other things, whether it's at the workplace or even in your own family. We see people trying to pull and push or maybe you go off to college and, and, and there's professors who kind of try to push against what you claim you believe. So there's false teachers still everywhere. Just here with Jude, they were more prevalent within the church. So Jude gives three Old Testament examples and one from Jewish literature concerning rebellion. Look at verse five. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not say, stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And then verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So he gives these examples, and we don't have time to get into them. He's going to be giving three more Old Testament examples in a second. But he gives these examples of rebellion. And they were, again, relatable to the reader. The reader was Jewish or was familiar with Jewish culture. So they can see a common theme. And if you read the Old Testament, you can see the same common themes throughout the Old Testament. It's rebellion against God's authority. It's sexual immorality and it's rejecting God's messengers. There's your three themes that are kind of pervasive all throughout Old Testament history. See, Jude points out that these false teachers that he's addressing will meet the same fate, though, the same fate that these 
ones who rejected God's authority back then. And he even uses this extra biblical example in verse nine of us seeing this kind of argument for Moses' body over the angel, uh, Michael, the archangel. It's kind of an interesting uh, tie-in there that they would have known that reference. They would have known that this was written about in their culture. But then he doesn't leave them there. He actually, he, he does that mini sermon and then he goes on to another mini sermon in verses 10 through 13 to illustrate the destruction of that rebellion and what it brings Look at verse 10, but these people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees and laid on them twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Notice in verse six and 13, he uses the same statement, the gloom of utter darkness. So it's interesting (laughs) how eloquently he goes off on these false teachers. But he gives three examples found in the Old Testament of the results of rebellion. He first uses Cain's pride and anger, found in Genesis 4. Then he uses Balaam's greed, which is a very interesting story about a talking donkey. You should check it out in Numbers 22. And then Korah's rebellion against authority in Numbers 16. So he gives all these examples and shows what happened to them, which they were destroyed, swallowed up, and like Korah and the rest of those people were literally swallowed into the ground. So he's talking about destruction of these false teachers. But one of the things that's important to notice, and uh, commentaries always help me with these things, especially when it comes to the Greek language. Verse 11, if you look at verse 11, it's it's a concept there that they were already destined for destruction or already facing this destruction even in the process of committing these acts. It's actually in the aorist tense here, the word perished. And it wasn't that the judgment was waiting to fall on them, but it was that they were considered to have perished long ago with Korah and all others who chose to rebel against God. It's a foregone conclusion for those who oppose God. They seem like they're winning, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. It seems like they're really making out good here with their wickedness and their rebellion, but what he's saying here is these false teachers are already done. They're already destroyed. In the same way for those who oppose God. So verse 12 and 13 are two of the most eloquently put verses that sound so fabulous as a poem but they're all about destruction. It's so amazing how he uses words to sound really pretty. But it's like, whoa, what is he really talking about here? Hidden reefs at your love feast. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept away by the winds, fruitless trees and laid on them twice dead uprooted, wild waves of sea crashing up the foam of their own shame like the ocean crashing against rocks. This is the end of the false teachers. This is the end of wickedness. Reminds us of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, 15, right? He's describing these 
people who come in and try to deceive. And what does he call them? Wolves in sheep's clothing. He says, beware. These people, they come at you in a way that seems innocent. But in the end, it leads to destruction. So he talks about this end. Look at verse 13, the second half there. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. You notice a theme there. And all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So end of verse 13, the second half, breaks us into this new thing that he's talking about, which is the end of these false teachers, kind of carrying us from this description of the false teachers. And it's interesting that he talks about judgment coming, and in verse 14 and 15, he uses another extra-biblical example in history. It's, a, it's Enoch, who was a biblical character, but this prophecy isn't found in Scripture. He's using another text, and it's from one Enoch. And so he uses this text for them to relate to what's happening here. And it's, it's his prophecy. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. And so just like Chase and Dave and myself and others who come on this stage use contemporary writings or recent writings, this is what Judah's doing. He's using like contemporary, older writings to make his point here. And the point is that judgment is coming. See, we often see wickedness as relentless. We often see it as, as that the wicked are winning, but Psalm 37, 12, and 13 reminds us of this truth. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And then Jude, again, graphically describes these false teachers. I don't think he liked them very much. <laughs> Loudmouth boasters. I mean, he's just going off talking trash about these false teachers. It's amazing. But he's really helping them understand, look, there's a problem. And notice this key word at the end of 16, favoritism. You ever see that anywhere else in Scripture? Well, it can be found in James 2, which Jude's brother wrote. And he spent an entire half of a chapter talking about favoritism. So I imagine these two had some conversations you know, at meals together, maybe with Jesus as well, you know, where he's like, all right, we got to do something about this favoritism. So he pops this in here as well. And so after we see the end of the false teachers, we get into verse 17, where we are guaranteed opposition. So he's not still yet to, how do we contend for our faith? He's still kind of laying the groundwork here. And he says, here's the opposition you are guaranteed. Look at verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So the, there's, these verses remind us that there are going to be people that set out as their goal to drag you down in your faith. Unbelievers, or maybe people that call themselves believers, false teachers that literally make it their mission to drag you down. You might be about to have Thanksgiving dinner with some of them. 
but it's these people who are coming at you and the reality is it's a guarantee. See, I've heard people over the years in ministry, uh, you know, talk to me about uh, complaints they have with a family member or a coworker or different people who, who kind of attack them or make fun of them for their faith or say, oh, that's ridiculous. We're in a different culture now. Why would you still believe that? And there's all this opposition, right? Almost like they're surprised. And it's like, hey, if you got this rope and you're pulling back, guess what? There's going to be pull back against you. If you push back, there's going to be pushing coming your way as well. So standing up against opposition, it goes against most of our instincts as humans, right? Most of us maybe are on the path of Garfield where it's like, hey, I just, yes, Garfield. My son Owen likes Garfield. Uh, He's over there. Just like Garfield, we want to chill. We want to relax. Maybe our pursuits and even where we spend our money and time, maybe come up with these basic words, comfort, peace, security, and rest, right? This is what our life is about. The American dream. Chill out, retire, hang out. And don't get me wrong, I'm all about having a party and hanging out. Trust me, I'll invite me over, I'm there. But sometimes that mentality creeps in and we don't realize, hey, we are fighting a battle and there's opposition. And we're called to be in the fight. And the fact that we're being persecuted, the fact that somebody is getting on our nerves in a certain situation uh, because we believe something and they don't and they get after us, that's not something bad. That's actually good. That means you're actually in the battle. That means you're in the fight. You're not promised an easy life. Look at the disciples. Read the scriptures. Read about the prophets. We are promised opposition. It's guaranteed. So the question for us is, what do we do with that opposition? How do we stand up? How do we get back in the game? And that's where we'll finish today in the action steps in contending for the faith in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It's powerful admonishments and encouragement. I know for me, when it comes to contending for the faith, I'm often guilty of going different directions than what he's talking about here. I hit up Google, hit up commentaries, listen to a podcast, listen to some encouraging music. None of those are wrong, right? None of those are bad. I mean, they can be, but they're not all bad in and of themselves. But if that's where I'm going to first, maybe I don't understand what this battle's all about. I need to be seeking God through his word first as my primary source, my foundation. So for us, it's important as well to seek him as our foundation. There's a guy named Shane Pruitt who speaks a lot into today's culture and you can follow him on Instagram. He's got these great quotes all the time and is really encouraging and challenging as well. 
And he talks about this backward way of contending for the faith. And he kind of answers this question when it comes to that that I just read the other day. It says, what's the best resource on navigating cultural issues like sexuality, gender confusion, forced tolerance, and even polytheism, which is multiple gods? His answer, the Bible. These beliefs were front and center in the Greco-Roman world. Progressive is just a new name for old sin. The Bible is always relevant. These things aren't new. It's not like, oh, I come up with a new sin. It's still here. It's always been here. It was there in the Old Testament. He just listed the sins. It's always been here. But scripture as the foundation is important. Other books, yes, other writings. Man, I've learned so much from people like Tim Keller and others. But you know where their foundation is? On the word of God. That's where we start in contending for our faith. So we challenge by Jude here. He uses the word beloved four times in this short letter, so it's important for us not to miss that. God uses this word actually when he's talking about his son in the transfiguration. They go up on that mountain and he's talking about his son and he talks about Jesus as beloved. He uses that word. This word has always been tied to suffering and death. It's often used in obituaries for those who have been left behind, you know, a beloved mother or a beloved brother or sister. It's not just a throwaway word here. These people are actively experiencing suffering and pain who Jude is writing to, right? And so what is happening here is they have friends and family who are actively being persecuted. Maybe they're in jail. Maybe they've been killed for their faith. And so Jude is giving this fresh perspective and this fresh challenge to contend. So throughout this time of writing of Jude and looking at his Old Testament history and looking at his tie-in to Jewish culture, he obviously memorized a lot of Old Testament, what we call Old Testament scripture. And it seems as we finish up, that there are many parallels to Psalm 37, almost like that was like the first chapter Jude memorized or something, like this is it. And as I was reading this, these verses, Psalm 37 just kept popping in my head as we're gonna see how crazy it is. So David sums up Jude's first 19 verses this way, Psalm 37, one and two, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. See, contending, it's not just sitting behind a screen, casting stones of racism and anger and hatred, you know, at people digitally. But it's also not just posting cheesy, you know, sayings or gifts or memes, you know, of cool things or even scriptures, although some of those are hilarious and I get lost in those probably just like you. But it's not just about that. Contending is personal. Contending is getting into the fight. Contending is like, like talking with people, hanging out with them, being in their lives so that things can be done more personally. And so we have encouragement. Now, verse 20, first one to contend for the faith is to build yourself up. Now, this isn't some arrogant, self-absorbed thing like, I need to find the best version of me and things like that that are out there right now best version of myself. No, that's not what he's saying, right? He's not saying build yourself up in that way. What he's saying is build yourself up in the knowledge of who you are in Jesus. 
This is how you build yourself up. And here's the tie into Psalm 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land of faithfulness. Verse 20, he goes on to say, pray in the Spirit. Now this is interesting. Praying in the Spirit. There are no coincidences that God brings about things in our lives that teach us and I'm doing this Bible reading plan with some guys from the Lake Belton football team and we're going through the book of John. And literally two nights ago, we're going through this passage in John 16 and this was just an extra verse in the reading plan that came out. Right after I'm studying this specific verse, pray in the spirit. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, the Spirit speaks on our behalf, and even in that moment, the Spirit's speaking, as I'm doing that reading plan, even into our time today. The Spirit's always speaking, so we pray in the Spirit. It reminds us of Psalm 37, 5, committing our way to the Lord, trusting in Him, and He will act. Verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God. Now, this is important as well. Uh, do you guys remember, I don't know if they still do this today, uh, English class, do you remember those stilts, like English grammar, you know, where it's like, here's the noun and verb, and here's everything underneath, you know, that type of stuff? Uh, I don't know if they still do that. Maybe they just forgot that, but... Uh, they just like rumble everything together because it's all done by your thumbs anyway. But, uh, but the idea, I sound really, I really sounded old right there. I just caught myself, sorry. Uh, but you get into these stilts and, it's, it, and in Greek it's really helpful to understand uh, scripture. And if we were doing a stilt in English grammar, this is what would be on the top. Keep yourself in the love of God. Everything else we're mentioning in these encouragements falls under that. It comes under that, that first line. So it's important for us to emphasize this, that uh, we can see his challenge. How do you contend for the faith? You first keep yourself attached to the one who is the definition of love. Psalm 37, 4, what does it say? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, not health and wealth, but he will realign your desires to agree with God. And that's what we do. And then he goes on in verse 21, he says, wait for God's mercy. This is extremely difficult, right? To wait on God. But some of the most powerful life lessons you will learn to contend for the faith are found in the waiting. And found in the waiting on God's mercy. Psalm 37, seven, what does it say? Be still before the Lord and know that, and wait patiently for him. So when we've understood his mercy, we've waited patiently for it. What can we do next? Look at verse 20, uh, 22. We get to show mercy to those who doubt. Notice those two words, uh, who doubt. He doesn't just say show mercy to people, but to those who doubt. Psalm 37, verse 8. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Instead of getting angry with people that don't believe like you do, instead of bashing them on social media, instead of confronting them in a way that's hostile, you actually get to contend with kindness. You can have a winsome spirit about yourself that we can find in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Yes, people need to hear hard truth. Don't get me wrong. 
but you don't have to drive them away with that hard truth. There's a way for you to speak in a way that's winsome, in a way that is, is uh, kind and loving. Maybe even relating to them in their doubt, saying, you know what, I'm no superhero here. I've had doubt too, and I still have doubt. And we can have mercy in that process. And then he says in verse 23, to snatch them out of the fire. Man, what a graphic statement. This shows a corporate faith being accountable to others where we have the opportunity to see judgment is on the horizon. Judgment is coming for these people. And we have the opportunity, as he says, to snatch them from the fire. Psalm 37, 35, and 36. I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. And then he goes on to say, hate sin and the stain it brings. Verse 23. I was thinking about stains and it made me think of uh, one of my uh, jerseys I have for my sports teams that I follow. And one of them is an Allen Iverson jersey. Now, I'm a big Philly fan, as you know, but the Sixers are actually my favorite team of all the different ones. And I have this jersey, and it's Allen Iverson. You don't know who he is, just Google YouTube practice, and you'll have a great, funny video. Uh, but the idea is this, not all about Allen Iverson. Even my girls modeling that jersey, they steal it from me all the time for different things. But the idea behind it is that uh, a little while ago, I actually uh, dropped some ketchup or marinara sauce, something on it, and I quickly wiped it off. Well, I wiped it off, and if you saw my daughter's wearing it, you wouldn't notice it unless you look closely, but I know where it's at. And so it kind of goes with this concept of, of hating sin and the stain it brings. It's the idea that, uh, okay, I have this stain. I know where it is, even though it's been washed away and in God's mind and eyes, right, it's gone. So I'm not being uh, falsely theological here, you know. I'm, in God's mind, it's still clean. But on the reverse, our human perspective, we still have this stain from sin. We still know. Some of you can think even now of stains from your past that are still there. And you still know exactly where they're at. You still know what you made that horrible decision in that moment or that decision that has ripple effects. And what he's calling us to in contending is for us to step in not just in our own lives, but into other people's lives to actually help contend for them and say, hey, you don't want to make that choice. It's going to have some long-lasting consequences. Let's try a little harder. Let's get with some people. Let's get with a counselor. Let's get with whoever it is that we can get with around the scriptures and foundationally see who we are in Christ and maybe we can avoid this stain that's going to happen. It's going to be with us. So we have a responsibility in contending. Psalm uh, 37, 27 says, Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. So this isn't just personal in contending. This isn't just you with the rope. It's you coming alongside others and maybe contending for someone else. Admonishing, encouraging, having mercy and challenging each other. In verse 24 and 25, he wraps it up with the doxology. What a great way to finish as we go into this Thanksgiving week. Listen to these, verse, these words. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Part of contending for the faith is being thankful for who we are and who we have in Jesus. As I, uh, my wife and I launched our oldest up to school, I was trying to think of ways like I could encourage. And we all wrote letters, had her, had her open them after we moved in, after she moved in and we moved out of that room, sadly. And uh, the main word that just kept coming to my mind. Of all the advice you give your kid, ties right into contending for the faith and it's the foundation. What we saw, loving God is abiding. And we have the privilege to abide in the Savior, the vine, we're the branches, and the only way we can truly contend for the faith, the only way that we are able to oppose opposition and pull back and gain ground spiritually is by abiding in the Savior. We abide individually, we abide as groups, as friends. May we be ones who contend for the faith and push ourselves and each other to be in the fight, to be in the battle. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that we get to contend for the faith. It is a privilege that you've called us to do. I pray that we'll take it seriously. Maybe for those that are here that don't know you, that they can begin this faith journey of contending, that they will know that they can trust you today and call upon your name for salvation that you promise to save them and become king of their lives, Lord. Pray that you'll bless us as we go out this week to contend for the faith, even this week, as we hang out with family and friends. In your name we pray, amen.